Mark McCord, I'm with Health Catalyst, so welcome everybody. We're really excited to have everybody here for this, uh, this session, again, session number seven. So I'm going to introduce <coughs> Dr. Russi in a moment, but first I'd like to take a moment to uh, introduce our analyst panel in the back. We have, you guys can raise your hands, we have Patrick Anderson, Joe Tennisketter, I took German, I know how to say your name, uh, Kevin <laughs> Scharnhorst, and Mike McBride. So, um, so we had the pre-session poll question up, and uh, hopefully everybody took that. I'm going to turn it over to you guys first to give us the results of that poll before we get started. see it on the left in a, just a minute. So the question is, do you work in some capacity in or for your EDs? Um, and these results are being filtered by respondents here in this session. And overwhelmingly, 62% um, responded no, with 38% as yes. Back to you, Mark. All right, great. So we're very excited to have uh, someone from the Mayo Clinic join us this year. In, uh, Dr. Christopher Russi is the Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine, Chair for the Division of Community Emergency Medicine in the Department of Emer Emergency Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. And he's gonna speak today on how Mayo Clinic standardized care across 22 emergency departments. So with that, Dr. Russi. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> hey, good afternoon. Um, I know it's post-prandial time. Lunch just happened, so I don't know if we could get the guitar guy to come in, but I'll do my best not to let you guys go to sleep. So. For the 62% that are here that are not part of emergency medicine, thank you, and I hope you find this actually useful and in interesting. You're never supposed to start a talk with a, an apology, but I'm going to. The title, it says how we've standardized, standardized implying that we've done it. And actually we haven't yet. We're, this is what I'm here to talk about is the journey that we have taken and are still taking on that path. And I'm here in a bit of a unique capacity. I was blessed to have been, um, interviewed by the advisory board earlier this year, and then subsequently got a phone call from Paul Horsmeyer saying, hey, would you come talk about this? I said, but Paul, this is a data and analytics summit, and we just don't have that quite yet. What he really wanted me to convey is uh, the journey that we've taken, and the message here is that you can do things despite the absence of data and analytics uh, when the right thing needs to happen. Don't be paralyzed. Uh, without when you don't have data and analytics at your at your disposal to use but doing the right thing sometimes just needs to occur and that's that's the journey that we're on right here so with that we'll jump into it so um, again apology number two I'm really hitting it out of the park aren't I my big oversight at data and analytics conference I didn't realize that there'd be a huge amount of IT folks at this at this conference so if you, have, uh, if you work for uh, your informational technology sectors within your organizations, put, put your answer under admin. So uh, what I'm interested in knowing, are you a physician? Do you have a physician and an administrator role combined? Uh, APP is the nomenclature for actually for nurse practitioner, physician assistants. Do you do that solely or do you have a combined role as an administrator and an APP? Same for nurse and administrator, I'd ask that you uh, answer with IT if you, if you do that as well. And I'll give it just a minute here and we'll show the results. It's good to know who's in the audience. 
Okay, we'll give you about 10 seconds to go ahead and answer that first <coughs> question, and then we'll show the results. Okay, you're now seeing the results up on screen. Okay, just by show of hands of the admin who is IT. A good chunk. Okay, all right, very good. All right, thank you. You can go back. Okay, so before we start, and I'm here to talk about integration and how you standardize the care and the journey that we've taken. It's real important to understand the vernacular. Integration falls on a spectrum. And when we undertook this journey three years ago, 10 pay grades above me actually met with Intermountain Health. And they shared with us, with us their experience and told us uh, to really, this is going to be difficult, if not should be avoided, the unified portion of this. So integration falls on a spectrum. There's coordinated, where units still operate fairly independently and in a siloed fashion, but they're working toward the same goal. And as you march up, the definition changes where uh, a standardized department or operation, you've got defined um, uh, characteristics and quality or uniform processes, but they're still operating relatively independently. Integrated, multiple units actually come together, which we're working toward, and then unified is a single operating unit. And as you can imagine in emergency medicine, a 24 by seven operation where we deal with every single disease on the spectrum, we deal with the zero age to the 105 year old, we can't, we can't operate as a single unit. We have to have pretty significant flexibility as it comes to our guidelines and our protocols. Also, I think as we, and this is my opinion, as you move up the pyramid here, you actually begin to lose the art of medicine. And that's a huge element for your provider core. So standardization, you should be able, we should be able to agree on how to take care of a migraine headache using the same policies, same guidelines, but with flexibility built into it. Um, because not every patient's the same, not every physician or provider's the same. Our department, though, should probably be integrated. We don't need 21 different practices. We need one singular practice uh, that defines itself and everybody molds to that definition. So what I'm here to suggest is you're, you're probably gonna fall on multiple areas of the pyramid if you're undertaking this practice within your own organizations and it's important to be aware of. I think there's error, people think that uh, integration means unified and we're not gonna march to that at all. We still need to maintain some flexibility within our sites and within our providers but need to agree on common goals. So why are we doing it? Why are we integrating? The Affordable Care Act, namely, that's the big one. Um, as predicted by emergency medicine, when that bill was signed, the Affordable Care Act was deemed as wonderful. Everybody now, or at least the people that are covered, are going up substantially. But what did it not have? It did not bolster the primary care workforce, correct? So we have a lot of people that have coverage, but now have still no access. So where do they go? They come to us. Emergency departments across this country are busting at the seams with volumes of patients who cannot get into primary care physicians for their care. So we need to continue to be doing our best to avoid costs and providing value for those patients. Uh, Medicare reimbursements are changing, the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, we do this to leverage the value equation. And the, the, the equation that I use is um, perceived benefit over cost. 
And if we can reduce the amount of emergency department visits or transfers between emergency departments within a system, that's going to create value because cost is going to go down. If we can agree upon defined standards across an entire system, the patient will perceive benefit and the value will increase. And we need to be operating clinically in a very synchronous fashion because of the Affordable Care Act and to avoid and mitigate costs. And let me give you some silly examples that have occurred in the past. Um, for those clinicians in the room that understand a patellar fracture, kneecap, broken kneecap, typically a non-operative issue can be managed as an outpatient, was seen in one of our very small, what we call a critical access hospital. That nurse practitioner did not feel comfortable managing that case, would call down to my academic flagship in Rochester, Minnesota, and say, I need to transfer this patient because I don't know what to do with this. They don't speak to me, they speak to an orthopedic resident who then tells them, send them to the emergency department in Rochester. Now the patient's getting two emergency department visits, double the bill, and for them to be told, go home after you just traveled 45 minutes for me to tell you this. It needs to stop, and this is what, we're, this is what we was dealing with in the past. Direct admissions, emergency departments don't necessarily need to send their patients through the emergency department at the receiving hospital. They should go directly to the floor. There's no need for us to have to lay eyes on them again unless there's some clinical deterioration. We're working to change that. We're doing this to uh, uh, disseminate best practices. I mentioned migraine already, kidney stones. There are things that we should be doing consistently as these patients present themselves, and of course, keeping patients local. If you can mitigate the transfer of patients from ED to ED or ED to an inpatient setting somewhere else, the patient's going to be much happier, the family's going to be much happier, uh, that reimbursement stays within that community hospital or community emergency department, so it's a win for everybody. And then the tertiary center is less full, uh, and so that, that's helpful. So some of the reasons why we're, we're actually moving toward integration. So back in 2012, our journey started. Um, our CEO, Dr. John Noseworthy, stood up before all of us and said, integrate. And we didn't know what this meant. There was no playbook, and this was the complete de novo creation of something. But what we knew within five minutes is our academic flagship in Rochester now had 21 more emergency departments that we were responsible for. Whew, yeah. It was huge, so thanks for that, now what do we do? Um, we had this urgent need to make a division of which now I chair, so the community division within our department. My job is to oversee the integration of all of these departments. Uh, staffing was initial uh, priority, but we truly had no idea of the magnitude of what we just inherited from our CEO. We do now, and we're working to try to fix it. But let me give you a little uh, background. So the Mayo Clinic Health System is the community arm of the Mayo Clinic, and so we inherited all those emergency departments within our community health system. It first started out in 1992, a very small emergency department in Northeast Iowa. We provide contract services there only, so it's a county-owned facility, but we give them the physicians and provider workforce. And over 21 years, this is how much it grew. And in emergency medicine in particular, it grew to 21 emergency departments, 10 of which are critical access sites. So we have a highly variable volume across our enterprise. Uh, two level three trauma centers, one level two trauma center. Ours is a level one trauma center in Rochester, and we touch between 320 to 350,000 lives annually. We're the second largest workforce in, our, in Mayo Clinic's enterprise. Uh, so our impact was big, not only to the patients, but to, to the enterprise itself. And we were told to fix it. 
<laughs> fix it. So we had to immediately jump out and develop some strategy and some vision around that, which I'll share here shortly. So this is our, this is our region. Uh, we have, uh, this is the health system in our Midwest. Remember, Mayo Clinic also has a site in Arizona, Scottsdale, and we have our site in Jacksonville, Florida, too. Those are considered other academic sites. But we have sort of a hub and spoke model. Um, our hubs in our four regions, for those of those that aren't familiar with the Midwest, this is Minnesota here, Northern Iowa here, Wisconsin here. Uh, the hubs serve the regions, and then each of these uh, outlined in the box uh, are the other emergency departments that feed in typically to those hub sites. So we've got a hub and spoke model already in place that we're trying to then get now to integrate and work off the same playbook. So I was, this sounds like a horrible job, but I was really excited about doing this because my background is, uh, I was a clinical researcher. So I was fortunate to have earned a K NIH KL2 grant. Uh, I was uh, developing a severe sepsis and septic shock protocol that began in a community-based ED. If the patient needed transfer, the idea was the pre-hospital system would pick up that protocol and it would terminate at the tertiary care center. So time zero for that care began long before that person arrived way at the tertiary care center. I thought, this is an opportunity. I have a huge lab here. This is going to be amazing. But as I say, I had to slam on the brakes big time because the workforce wasn't there. And so for the last three years of my life, I have been correcting the workforce in our, in our uh, community-based practices to get this up and running. Um, <clears throat> some of our sites, 50% of the uh, clinical schedule is being filled by locums. 50% of 24 by 7 emergency medicine being filled by outside entities that are not invested in your philosophy, your values, your mission, uh, and that's a challenge. So why am I here? I mentioned before this is really a journey sharing and to show you that you can do things in the absence of data and sometimes pulling the trigger when you know the right thing is, is okay to do. So where did, we, where did we start? How did we do it? This gift gave us 22 distinct cultures and personalities to try to integrate. All of these operations were siloed and completely independent. So they had their own way of doing things, and now we're trying to work through that. As you saw by the map, we're geographically dispersed, but we're also very economically dispersed because this is rural southern Minnesota, rural western Wisconsin, and rural northern Iowa. Uh, so uh, big, big disparity between geography and the economics. A variable provider and sometimes absent workforce. The locums issue was huge for us. In three sites alone that were moderate emergency departments, maybe one seeing 17,000 a year, one seeing 13,000 a year, and one seeing 26,000 a year, we were hemorrhaging $4.5 million annually on locums physicians. This is their uh, bonuses and hourly rates to fill these shifts. So hemorrhaging cash. Again, each one of these places were siloed um, in their own efforts to recruit. Their salaries were completely all over the map. One site in particular was paying 20th percentile of market. How do you hire anybody when you're paying 20th percentile of market? You don't. Uh, their administrations were different and privileging was an issue as well. So what we faced was a sheer staffing crisis. So there's no way we can integrate. If we have the wrong people, that means no engagement, no integration. So we obviously put our eggs in the staffing issue. 
So for those that do work in the emergency department, or if you know, your next question is, do you have locum tenens routinely staffing your emergency departments within your systems? All right, we'll give about 10 seconds to, to put in your responses and then we'll share the results. Okay, and here is the survey poll results. Okay, pretty typical. Pretty typical. And, they, and you know, does anybody know what locums means in Latin? Close. Placeholder. It's placeholder. And that's how that organization functions. I'm not here to trash locum services at all. But as you try to integrate and grow an organization, to have a placeholder who isn't ingrained in your mission, vision, and values, you're not going to proceed. You're not going to move forward. So that's where we had to focus on uh, getting that uh, shored up. So immediate strategy and tactics, um, how did we get all these 21 different places to begin to operate and work on the same page? First six months of my job with this was a road trip. This is not phone calls, this is not emails, this is handshakes across the table, being an advocate at the C-suite for your practice. So I was on the road, sitting on other people's turf, saying, this is what we're here to do for you. I had to convey the message that the ivory tower is not coming to take your jobs, to tell you what you have to do, but rather we're here to help. So if you're in the process of this and you haven't done this, I highly recommend it because it immediately lended credibility to what I was trying to do when I was able to go to someone else and say, here's how I can help you. And let me understand your problems in today's date. And, and that worked substantially. We had to fix the salary. So as I said, it was all over the place. One place, 20th percentile of market, you don't hire anybody. They couldn't, they couldn't hire a board certified emergency physician for a decade prior to us taking over this. Uh, so we had to make immediate corrections in that. And that was not an easy sell when we go from the 20th percentile to maybe the 65th percentile of market value. That's tough. You had to, we had to put the right tools in the right place to get the right people. Some of these sites that provided high acuity emergency care did not have an ultrasound in the emergency department. The rub is, how do I convince a small hospital with a lim small operating margin to spend $60,000 on a bedside ultrasound so we can provide the care that we know is a true emergency medicine? That was difficult, but we did it. They, helped, they saw our vision. We had to put the right leadership teams in place. So with all due respect to my surgical friends and my friends in family practice and internal medicine, board-certified emergency medicine physicians want to work for a board-certified emergency physician who understands the practice, understands the mindset. And so we sought talented people and put them in immediate medical director roles in some of our more austere sites uh, to, to bring this open. And it kicked open the door for recruitment. I can tell you, standing here today, we're near completely full across everywhere. It's been wonderful. So we're working on developing the people, and our elimination of, of the locums use is, is uh, profoundly down. So that was the immediate strategy. My job, if you find yourself in my position, was very interesting, and it was a rapid evolution. I was a clinical researcher. I was only responsible to me or to the grant or to a team that might have been three or four people as we put through projects. Now I have 400 nurses, over 200 providers, and so I had to learn on the fly 
uh, how to set vision and strategy. I'm deeply in, ingrained in recruitment uh, for our Midwest practices. I had to learn how to have the conversation about salary and compensation standardization at the C-suite level. I had to be an advocate at the C-suite level. A whole different job. You asked me 10 years ago, you thought I'd be doing this, I'd laugh at you. I thought, no way. But I'll tell you, despite its ominous nature, it's the most fun I've had in my career. We're making impactful change and uh, doing it in a way that is meaningful. And we're working obviously toward practice standardization and next, once we get the right people all there, the practice gets standardized, we're working on tools for education for our large workforce too. So some of the successes that we've had so far, I've mentioned we've got a very large and productive division that I lead now. Um, recruiting was interesting. All of these sites, they were siloed. They did not have a centralized recruiting practice and the savvy applicant would go from one of our sites to the next site and could tell them, they offered me $10 more an hour, what are you gonna do? Oh, we'll, we'll make it 15 and go back. Well, they've given me now 15. What are you going to do? This kept going up. Not, and the right hand was not talking to the left hand. It was truly amazing. So we put together a centralized recruiting process whereby anybody applying to Mayo Clinic uh, through our community portal will come through a singular portal through the web. We know who's applying where to who, when they've been spoken to, and what's going on. So we've eliminated uh, that variable. In just a couple years, we brought in 18 new emergency medicine physicians. And every time I hire one board certified or board eligible emergency doc at the 65th percentile of market, I save $75,000 per FTE when I can erase a locums off the books. That's huge. That's huge. So we had a big significant salary raise for these emergency physicians, but I'm still saving money. And so the administration has been loving this. And then we've also developed, we call it a CA position, a clinical associate. We've, we've got them hybrid roles where a physician might want to do some community practice, but also be engaged in our academic practice in Rochester. And they fill both. They work in both places. And that's been huge. I mentioned bedside ultrasound. We've got that in place. Our nurse practitioner and physician assistant fellowship has been developed. We, we made our own fellowship in emergency medicine for these folks because we have 10 critical access hospitals, some of which only see maybe 2,500 patients a year. It makes zero sense financially to spend a premium dollar on a physician to sit there and see four or five patients in a 24-hour period. But we can't just plug in anybody in there to care for these people. So um, we created our own fellowship. If you're into this world and you understand what I'm talking about, nurse practitioners and physician assistants do not they are not trained in emergency medicine through their, their curriculum. They rarely even see the emergency department. And so putting them in that environment is risky and significant burnout occurs. So we built the fellowship to train them our own. We're growing our own workforce. And every time we hire one of those individuals and offset a physician that's not work or working in a very tiny critical access hospital, we save about $210,000 each. And then we're working on a shared staffing model as well. We're creating our own locums group that's mobile, if you will. We continue to demonstrate the value of emergency medicine. We're reducing transfers, ED to ED, because we've got the right people in place. The reduction of on-call services. I don't need to call in orthopedists and anesthesiologists to do stuff that we can do. So that's exciting. Um, and I want to mention lastly, because our time's running short, Logix Health is an external uh, coder that we have contracted with 
that is helping us shift that curve that was talked about this morning, the, uh, the decision curve. Um, in, in two sites, in, in the four-month period, we've realized $2.2 million with correct coding that we were losing before. With a third site that we've added in, we're gonna, the estimate was uh, another $8 million. This is only a four-month period. So the coding was poor, 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 poor. So we're seeing significant financial gains by turning over that part of our practice to an external vendor who does this very, very well. And we've had some new emergency departments added. So um, we've got some future things that we're going to be working on. Uh, as I've mentioned, matching providers to volume and acuity in the sites, um, developing a singular Midwest quality team, a singular practice team, um, some things that I don't necessarily have to get into here, but happy to answer questions about. And I think my time is, is up. So with that, the, the lessons that I wanted to share with everybody is take a real hard look. If, if you're doing this or you're part of this, have a very hard look at your current workforce. You're going to have to make substantial investments to correct any uh, issues that are ongoing. Hire people that have fire in the belly. You want, you want to have that engaged, enthusiastic people that come and believe in your mission. Get the right leaders in the right place. And doing the right thing is okay. Don't be paralyzed in the absence of any data or analytics yet. So with that, I'll conclude and open it up for questions. So thank you very much. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Russi. That's yeah. very nice. Um, so before we start into the Q&A session, we're going to go back to the analyst table and let them give us some insights from the poll questions and things that they've uh, derived from the activity during the session. Uh, sure. We, as you saw, we had a pretty even 50-50 split on a couple of our questions. So we weren't able to draw any correlations, but we did find some interesting things as far as you know, when people were applauding and showing appreciation. I think uh, the first one we saw was when you talked about being excited about the charge you had to, to normalize standards and fix things. I think probably had a bunch of people that maybe could relate to those type of things. And then also your comment about um, how ED physicians want to be led by other ED physicians or people that know, feel like them and can understand what they're doing. So those are the two <coughs> major things when we saw, you know, hiccups and people appreciating, you know, what we're saying. So Wonderful. Those really resonate with people. Great. Thank you. Great. Okay, so uh, we got several questions that were entered people here. in front of this speaker. <laughs> um, so thank you for those, and uh, people voted on those. So we'll start at the top with highest priority and go down from there. So the first one is, um, standardized sounds like lean. Did your approach also include lean thinking? Uh, great question. Um, no, not yet. Uh, whoever asked that. Um, it needs to. Um, we, again, we were dealing with solely a staffing crisis. Uh, and what we, we didn't know what we didn't know. And what's very interesting about this conference is uh, the data and analytic platforms that are out there to help you truly understand what's happening in the background. We didn't have that luxury to even have that. So to understand where things were to allow us to take the places where we think it should go, it, it just didn't exist. Data. Um, may have existed in a paper form in one of our rural sites and a partial Excel spreadsheet in another. And so um, gathering all that up for us to truly understand and apply lean principles um, was incredibly challenging. As, however, we looked toward the future and began to develop processes by which we move patients around, 
uh, care processes, uh, where are we falling short, admission processes, then yes, it's going to be invoked, but as f for our early start, we haven't yet. Great. Very interesting. These must have been sitting next to each other because the second <laughs> question is very related to that. It's if you could have had data, what would you have wished for? Oh, um, that's a great question. Um, I truly would have liked to known uh, provider-specific metrics. Uh, that would help me build a more compelling case uh, as I sold the concept of hiring and retaining our own staff. Uh, rather than uh, providing external contracted staff to come in. Because uh, I think there's a significant difference between real emergency medicine personnel and those that are filling a gap as a locums. Um, again, I don't mean to insult any locums if they're in the audience, but uh, I notice the difference. It's palpable, and I would have loved to have more sp provider-specific metrics. RVUs, RVUs per hour, RVU per patient per hour, uh, procedural RVUs. Um, admission uh, percentages, proportion of emissions, um, uh, returns back to the emergency department, granular, granular depth uh, to each provider would help me make the argument uh, much easier, but it, it didn't exist. We didn't have it. Mayo's very interesting. Our, our community-based practice operates on an entirely different EMR than the academic site does. So they're on Cerner, and we're on a whole bunch of homegrown products. <laughs> And uh, I, it's, it's, it's embarrassing to say that, but it's just the truth. Now, Mayo has committed now we are moving all toward Epic. The entire enterprise is moving to Epic, which is a billion-dollar investment. It's going to happen over the next five years. And we'll all be able to talk to each other and those things we can pull out. But um, had I had those specific metrics, I think my job would have been much easier at the C-suite level making cases for, for change. I don't think so. Because we had the I did have the financial metrics to back it up. You're hemorrhaging cash on a service that I know doesn't provide the quality that we want. Now, that's where it got a little gray, the quality aspect. How do you know? That stuff was very difficult to obtain. But when I talk to a CAO or a CFO, and I say, you just lost $4.5 million in the last year on someone who's non-Mayo, in a Mayo facility, taking care of Mayo patients. That just, that was an argument that shh, shut the book. It was easy. That helped. Okay, great. The next question is, how did you engage MDs and staff in the transformation? This is where I was incredibly lucky. So um, at the start of this, I was extremely uh, fearful of pushback. Here comes the ivory tower telling me what I have to do. And we didn't want that at all. And so part of my road trip was truly understanding what, is, what are the issues you're facing? What are you facing today? I truly want to know. And then put those all together and work at those on a strategic, a strategic plan. Um, what we found was the exact opposite. Uh, everybody was so thankful that we were doing this. Everyone was engaged right from the beginning. So the most pushback I had was from CAOs and CFOs when bottom lines were questioned or when we needed to make big changes on salary and compensation and benefits. 
Uh, but for the clinical practice, this was nothing but a welcomed, uh, a welcomed journey. And so that I was truly fortunate to have that. I didn't have to sit and engage people to get them to fix. They would, we walked through the door and they said, finally, it, it took, why, why did it take so long? Uh, so that's, that's where we were very fortunate. Great. And related to that question, did you see a change in the physician culture with such a rapid addition of physicians into the practice? And what was the impact on existing staff? Say it one more time, I'm sorry. Did you see a change in the physician culture with such a rapid addition of physicians into the practice? And what was the impact on the existing staff? I don't know if it was a change at the physician culture, but each site's culture has changed itself. Uh, and this is, this is a multidisciplinary um, uh, service line. So emergency medicine is, works with pre-hospital providers. We touch every single specialty under the house of medicine, the nursing staff. Um, so I think when we put the right talent in there that operates efficiently and does it uh, for the patients first and foremost, and does that on a day-to-day -day basis, the culture itself globally has begun to shift and change in the positive. So again, before with uh, some of these sites, the nurses would complain, we have no idea who's gonna show up today to help us care for these patients. That is just not a healthy environment I would wanna necessarily work in if I was a nurse or a paramedic. And now it's awesome, we've got Dr. X, Y, and Z working, let's focus on making things better and improving the practice and not being fearful of who's gonna show up through our doors today. So that has been the biggest shift, and, and uh, the global culture is changing in each of these sites. Great. And we have one last question, and this one I believe you've somewhat answered already, but I'll, I'll give you a chance to, to respond to this. Appropriate care in the appropriate setting. Are you using analytics to properly position patients? We're starting to. We haven't yet, but we're starting to. So this integration work uh, is in its infancy. This, for me, this is a 10-year project, easy. But as we begin to look globally, not just at emergency medicine, but you look at all of the hospitals and different service lines around this Midwest practice, this is a huge map. How do we move patients around? And those analytics are just now starting to come out. We've got what's now being developed. It's called the Admission um, Transfer Center. And so it's a collective of physicians and nurses who, uh, when services are needed or transfers are made, come into a singular source and this collective of individuals helps identify the best possible place for that patient to go. It doesn't always have to come to Rochester. It could go to another hub site where the care is just as good. Um, and so that group is beginning to understand the flow across that practice, where they go, but it's in its infancy and, and we're working for it. Great. Well, if no more questions, then I'd like to thank you again, Dr. Russi. It was very enjoyable. And very nice. Ah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it so much. Thanks. So in the last two minutes, we'd like to ask everyone to fill out the choose one thing in the uh, handouts that are at your place settings. We'll give you a minute or two to do that. <laughs> 